0: Welcome to the Ministry of First Reformed Church of Aberdeen, South Dakota. Our worship services are at 9 o'clock every Sunday morning. Now we join Pastor Hank Bone as he brings us God's Word. We take our Bibles and we turn to Psalm 48. As we've mentioned before, we are now in the the second book of Psalms, written chiefly by the sons of Korah, written by various people and, and given to the sons of Korah and managed by them. And they are Psalms that are really post-David, following the period after David. Psalm 48 is entitled, The Glory of God in Zion. And it begins, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. In His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great King." God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them there, and pain as of a woman in birth pangs. As when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it forever. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will be our guide, even to death. Let us pray. Father, we do pray as we come to this psalm that you might cause our minds and our hearts to be settled to the hearing of your word, cause your spirit to to so work in the proclamation of your word that, that these things are written upon our hearts, that they, they cause uh, us to meditate upon them and to delight in them. Because you are our God and we are your people. And thus your pray, we pray for your continued blessing within our lives through the working of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in two weeks... First Reformed Church will celebrate its 75th anniversary as a church here in Aberdeen. And maybe the question that should be on our minds is, what should that mean to us? After all, it's just a church. It's a small church that we come to on Sunday morning and we hear a sermon. But in the greater scheme of things, this church is relatively unimportant. There are many churches. But how much do you know about the history of First Reformed Church of Aberdeen? Did you realize this is 75 years? Did you even know that? How much do you know about the history of the RCUS? About the Eureka classes? Or the struggles of the German Reformed Church? Born out of the Palatinate in Heidelberg, Germany. Why is a celebration even important? What is so important about this church at this time and in this place? Consider the fact that 75 years ago, the start of the church arose from the labors of significant congregations in Hosmer and Loyola. Churches where today there is not even the building left. No sign that they ever existed in those towns. What is so important about this church at this time and in this place? And the answer is that it matters a great deal. It is not the size of the church that makes it important. It is not the location. It is not the building. It is not the culture that surrounds us. It is the faith of the people that make up the church that matters. It is your faith and your faithfulness as God's people in response to the promises of God and your sense of the presence of God. It matters a great deal in embracing your calling by God to make the praise of your God known to the ends of the earth, to tell of the glory of God's church To the generation following, it matters a great deal. Celebrating these landmarks of time are for your benefit as believers to turn your attention to the history of God's care over time. In Psalm 48, the psalmist sets his sights on the church as the fixture through which God's glory is seen in its most vivid display of his love and care for those whom he has called to be his peculiar people. The setting for this psalm is thought to be following one of the sieges under the divided kingdom when invading armies came upon Jerusalem and the city was faced with little hope of turning back her enemies. But God interceded, and the enemy armies fled in the sight of Jerusalem, not because of the fear of those inside, but because God had struck fear in their hearts. And so the psalmist marvels at how God guards, governs, and guides his people. And in this psalm, you must see that what is in view is not the physical building of Jerusalem, but that it stands as a type a shadowy picture of the church of God. I want to divide our attention between three points. The great king of the city, the glory of the city, and the gospel of the city. So first, the great king of the city. We see that in the first three verses. It opens up, great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in his holy mountain. The focus of this psalm is a description of the city. But the focal point is not upon the city, but upon the greatness of the Lord. And there we see it's that that covenant name of God and the greatness of Yahweh or Jehovah, who is to be greatly praised in the city belonging to him. Throughout, you will find these descriptions regarding the owner of the city, In verse 1, the city of our God. In verse 2, the city of the great king. In verse 8, the city of the Lord of hosts and the city of our God. The central focus of the city is on who sits on the throne. But it is not the man who sits on the throne. It was not King Ahaz or Jehoshaphat or Asa who were kings at a time when the city came under siege only be delivered from utter despair by God's deliverance from heaven in a miraculous way. The focus of Psalm 48 is upon the Lord God who sits upon his throne in the heavenly Jerusalem, the true image, the original of the kingdom. You can hear the echo of Psalm 2, the verses 4 through 6 here. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them, his enemies, in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. As you read your Bible, you must recognize that every occasion for great praise was the result of the same thing, the presence of God. That sensing, that that understanding of the presence of God in the midst of his people. Why do you come to church? Is it to praise the Lord who is great and greatly to be praised? should be. You have the sense on Sunday morning that you have come into the presence of God? In verse 4, it says, God is in her palaces. And the word palaces is a word for a, a fortified structure in a, a royal complex, which when followed in that verse by the word refuge, has the idea of fortress walls. Again, it picks up a theme we find in the scriptures, and picked up by, by Martin Luther, and a mighty fortress is our God. Notice he's not saying a mighty fortress are the walls of Jerusalem. He's saying a mighty fortress is our God who defends us. You know, one of the interesting Old Testament Bible stories is the story of Jericho. We know the story when when Israel came into the Promised Land and they crossed over the River Jordan and then they marched around Jericho, which is a, a great fortified city built and designed to keep illegal immigrants out. They built the wall and God tore the wall down. And then God said, Don't rebuild the wall because it's not the wall that protects you, but it's your God who protects you. And even here, the fortress city walls is not what protects them, but it's God who is their mighty fortress. But don't miss that it is not the wall that makes it the place of refuge but it is God who is known as her sure defense. It reminds us of the words of Psalm 46.5 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. When you find yourself in trouble and you only look at the thing with your physical eyes, you'll tend to be filled with fear and anxiety, maybe even become depressed. But you are called to see through the eyes of faith. It is in the eyes of faith that you sense God is present with you. And he removes the fear in the sense that you trust God can deliver you. Isn't that the great beauty of the sovereignty of God? Of understanding that God's providence is really controlling everything? So that even when when things are difficult and tough and hard and we're worried and we're concerned, we we can have that confidence in God. So that in adversity we might be patient, in prosperity we might be thankfulness, our catechism says. God's providence, based upon our our understanding the presence of God and seeing Him as that sovereign, almighty, all-powerful God who can work all things after the counsel of His own will, and He does. And he does, so that it removes our fear. It doesn't mean we're never filled with fear, but it means that our fear is tempered with confidence in God. In the same way that in death, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. The fact that God's presence is ever with us levels things out so that the world becomes confused when it looks at us, doesn't understand because we have that principle of the Spirit of God working within us. Doesn't mean there's no pain. Also doesn't mean there isn't any joy. There's both, but they're they're shaped and formed and, and what you might say seasoned by the very grace of God. whether it is an army surrounding Jerusalem or the guard in the garden to arrest Jesus, those who belong to the Lord can have confidence that God will guard them. Think about Daniel 3. You guys know the story, Daniel 3. It's a story where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego refused to bow down to the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And the penalty for that was to be thrown into the hot, fiery furnace. And, of course, they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And he confronts them and listen to their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God will we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and if He will deliver us from your hand, O God. but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. God, if He wants to, to save us, even in the middle of the fiery furnace, he can do that. But if he doesn't choose to do that, It's okay. We're still not going to serve you. We serve our God. God will deliver us. And ultimately, deliverance for us is not a deliverance in this world, but a deliverance from this world. They understood that. And we understand that too, so that we bear up in difficult times. It is the great king whom we serve by faith in the actions of our lives that is worthy to be praised. You know. Secondly, the glory of the city. We kind of see that in the verses four through eleven, but it it really is introduced in verse two, where we read, "Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great King." And here is the clue that we're not talking about the physical walls of Jerusalem, or even the mountain it is it is built upon. There is throughout here. Jerusalem in view, but we might be hard, but it might be hard to see that it is not the physical Jerusalem or geographic Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem as a symbol for the beauty of the church. Verse 2 says, beautiful in elevation, but Mount Zion was not the tallest mountain. It was a great city, but there were other greater cities. Jerusalem paled in comparison to Babylon or the courts of Pharaoh. It is not the geography or the building, but what it represented. And and what was that? Jerusalem was the place where God meets with his people. Because it is the city of God, it is also the city of God's people who have been called to bring praise to his name. A people which have been delivered from their enemies. In the world. It is the place of refuge where the child of God finds salvation and rest from the burdens and threats of the world that bear down hard upon us to bring us to destruction, and yet we do not fear. Because God is with us. Verses four through seven are a picture of the enemies of God and his people who gather to bring destruction. But marvel at God's deliverance. That when they actually come up to the city, God strikes fear in their hearts and what they see is the power of God. It's no different than when the troops of Israel came marching with the Ark of the Covenant in front of them. It wasn't Israel's armies that scared him; It was the Ark. Because that was God. You should learn here That when the world comes at you, but sees the power of God in your life, they are troubled and will often retreat. When confronted with the holiness and power of God, a sudden fear like that of of going into labor strikes at the heart of the ungodly. Suddenly, it comes upon them. That's sort of what's going on here in the verses 4 through 7. They come up boldly, but suddenly face to face with God, suddenly things strike them. The ships of Tarshish were known as the largest and strongest of the sailing vessels at that time. And so the point is that the strongest weapons of the world are blown away by the power of God with the ease of a strong east wind. The psalmist intends to place your focus inward upon the church by dismissing the outward. Do not fear the world, but have faith in God. Verses 8-11 through 11 become the shifting of your focus from the threats in the world around you to the safety that is found in God's presence. Notice how God becomes central to what is seen. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple, according to Your name, your right hand is full of righteousness. Everything shifts our focus from the the world around us to the God before us. What is it? What is to be upon your hearts and minds as the people of God? What is to captivate your soul? Well, look at verse 8. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it forever. Establish what? All that God promises to you. Deliverance, liberty, and peace in the Lord Jesus. That which we have heard, that which we have seen in the transformation of our lives, that becomes what captivates us. All that God has promised to me. So what is to be your response to God's faithfulness? When you believe that God is your God, how are you to respond? Look at the responses in verses nine through 11. Verse nine, you think on that. Think on, you think on God. And where is this done? In the midst of the temple, in church. But, you know, it's interesting, I thought about this. As New Testament Christians, you have become the temple of the Holy Spirit so that you worship God in spirit and truth. And what's the next phrase there? According to your name, according to God's word, according to what God has said. Yes, we come into church to worship, and and there's a special, unique dynamic in church where the people of God come together in the presence of God and hearing of his word is on display. But in your own life, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. So that Jesus says the day is coming to the Samaritan woman when people neither worship here in Jerusalem or here, but will worship God in spirit and in truth. Why? Because we, became, we become the temples of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. And that comes with obligations and responsibilities in the things we involve ourselves with. So that we throw off the lusts of the flesh and we embrace the, the power of the Spirit. And we pursue that. And we nurture that. I've always been intrigued by Paul's statement, don't quench the Spirit. Why? Because first of all, I think God's sovereign and all-powerful. How can I stop God? And the Holy Spirit is God. How can I quench the Spirit? But, but Paul's point is this, that in the choices that we make and the actions that we take up, we choose those things that are going to promote the work of God in our life. Prayer and Bible study and fellowship. Even the speaking of the love of God that has, has touched my heart to my, my friend and my neighbor who may be finding themselves Struggling. And say, I can pray with you. And I, I, can, I can really understand your sorrow. But there's a solution. It's found in God. Verse 11. You rejoice and are glad. And that brings us to our final point. The gospel of the city. In verses 12 through 14. We read, walk about Zion And go all around her, count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. Verses 12 and 13 is a description of studying your history as the church. Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18 to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we are a part of that church that Jesus is building. Now, I'm not sure that there's anyone here that was part of that startup of this church 75 years ago. But some have been here a long time. How many of you have studied God's hand of providence in building this church? We can talk about the building, and that is part of our identification. We're the, that metal building on South Dakota Street over by the water park. But that's not our identification. Our identity is in Christ. We are those who have been born again by the Spirit of God who find our peace in the salvation of the Lord. That's our identity. So meditate on on how God brought you here and what that means for you and how crucial it is to be a biblical believer. Consider not just the pastors who have served here or those from the Eureka classes who had a a vision for a church in Aberdeen. But consider how God established a Reformed faith out of the work of the apostles of the New Testament church. How the creeds and confessions give expression to what you believe the Bible teaches and directs you in how you are moved to praise God from whom all blessings flow. The church has a history. A history of faith, a history of belief, a history of confession. Celebrating these landmarks as we are about to. These landmarks of time are for your benefit as believers to turn your attention to the history of God's care over time. Did you notice how verse 10 said that the praise of God was to the ends of the earth? Meaning even to Aberdeen? The church is to be evangelistic. You are to be an evangelistic Christian spreading the praise of God to the ends of the earth. Which begins with the block over. (laughs) But it is also to be generational. Look at the end of verse 13. That you may tell it to the generation following. You must know our history so that you can tell it to your children and children's children. I think about the Old Testament practice at at Passover when the father would sit down and he would explain all these things to the kids. In fact, it was actually noted at a certain point where the kids were supposed to ask, Father, what do these things mean? And the father would recount all of God's deliverance out of Egypt and the exodus and the providing of manna and all of those things. He would recount the whole history of how God was their God. We're to do that. You must know our history so that you can tell it to your children's children. God's covenantal design is for his promise to be within families. As parents, how seriously do you see the Sunday school and catechism program in this church? Is that something where when they hit a certain age, you ship them off to church and let the church handle it? Or are you engaged in it? You know, one of the most fascinating things for me over the years has been how many parents, normally mothers, say, yeah, when I was catechized, it just seemed like I was learning a whole lot of stuff and not really, you know, but when my kids were catechized and I had to work with them on that, it all really made sense to me all of a sudden. I learned more teaching my kids catechism than I learned in catechism. Interesting statement. How many of you took advantage of it to once again have that benefit of communicating to your children and reaffirming in yourself the very covenantal blessings of God. We see the gospel of good news or good news in this through verse 14 where the psalmist ends by reminding us that being in the church is belonging to God. He is our God. When? Last week when things were going good? No, he's our God forever and ever, forever and ever. In fact, the hope of the Christian is what? That, well, yeah, there are difficulties in this world and things I don't care for. There's coming a day when that's all going to be removed, a time when sin's impact will be gone. He will be our guide, it says, even to death, or in some translations, forever. Have you so put yourself into the hands of God as the guide of your life that you are looking for and and willing to go through those doors that God opens to you? You know, we, we pray that we are to serve the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We say that every other week. When we read those commandments, when we, we hear that word of God, does it strike you? Does it, does it grab hold of you? Am I really loving God with all of my heart? Am I, am I using my strength for him? Is my soul committed to him and my mind? When God opens the door, am I quick to say, Here I am, Lord, send me. Have you made it your life to walk according to the vocation, the the calling in which God has called you to serve him and others in Christian love? All those who are in Christ, he has promised to be your guide even to death, which is another way of saying he will be your God forever in whom you will delight. And so where you may have questions now, you may wonder why, how much, why can't I more? Understand we have, as the catechism says, but a small taste, a small beginning of that glory that will become ours in all eternity, in the forever. So what God has begun in you, that small work that God has begun in you, have this great confidence that if God has begun it in you, he will complete it. That he is the, not only the author of your salvation, but he is also the finisher of your salvation. And in that we can take great confidence and we can lift up our voices and we can praise with great praise the great king of the city, the king of the church, even our Lord Jesus, who is king of kings. Amen.